Well, Stephanie, thanks for sharing your story with us. Good morning. My name is Aaron, uh, pastor here at Lake Forest Church. Uh, boy, we love to hear God's stories. In fact, that is our bread and butter as a church. We believe that God is at work in every life. He's at work in your life, and we would love to hear more about that. Lake Forest Church is a church for skeptics, spiritual explorers, and longtime followers of Jesus. And we hope that this is a place where you can just learn and discover how to live out your role in God's story. And if we can be a part of supporting you or encouraging you in any way, we'd love to know how to do that. We can even uh, receive prayer requests or, or just uh, comments in the chat box right now if you're watching online. Uh, let us know how we can serve you. Let us know how we can pray for you. During this challenging season for all of us, we all need a little bit of extra help from each other and from God. So uh, we invite you to lean in on that. Well, it was Christmas Eve, 1914, and the war had been going for about eight months. On the Western Front, soldiers from France and England were dug in, in their trenches, opposite the German forces in theirs. The small patch of land between these trenches was known as no man's land, and you can guess why. Well, these trenches were so close that the men could actually hear the voices of the other men on the opposing side uh, in conversation. And so it was on a bitter cold Christmas Eve in 1914 that one of the most surprising and unusual things happened. No one knows for sure how it all started, but many, many would write home to their loved ones about this remarkable event. One soldier wrote this. He said, soon after dusk, the Germans began shouting, Merry Christmas, Englishmen. Of course, our fellows started shouting back, Merry Christmas, Germans. And then it began to happen. Large numbers on both sides began to leave their trenches and meet in the middle in no man's land. They were unarmed. They were there in friendly ways between the lines. And here an agreement all on its own came to be made that they would not fire a single shot until midnight that night. The men were fraternizing. They were sharing uh, stories. They were swapping cigarettes for brandy, and they were even exchanging trinkets in memories of this moment. Now, certainly some of the stories are a bit exaggerated. Supposedly there was a soccer game, and there's dispute as to who actually won. But what we do know for sure was this. No shot was fired in that portion of the Western Front until well after midnight. What a strange, strange Christmas indeed. But what was it on that cold night that brought together these men from opposing sides? What was it that united them even though they were at war together? Well, it was this and this alone. It was a commitment to something greater. The Christ Mass. The day set aside to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And that Christmas, became, it became known as the Christmas miracle of 1914. We are living in a remarkably divided time right now. In fact, it seems that there's, there's no issue in our society today that, has, that is truly neutral. And this has deeply affected the church as well. In spite of Jesus' prayer that we looked at last week, that we might be one, that we might be united, we often find ourselves divided, maybe even angry or bitter at our brothers and sisters who do not share our particular views about important matters in the world today. So what we are doing here at Lake Forest Church is we're pausing in the midst of this season to ask a very important question. This is the question we are asking. How are we as Christians 
to treat those with whom we disagree? How are we as Christians to treat those with whom we disagree? What do the Scriptures actually have to say about this? Indeed, what does God require of us, of those of us who call ourselves Jesus followers? Now, if you're a skeptic or a spiritual explorer, you're kind of off the hook today because what we're going to talk about today applies specifically to Christians. But I hope that you might hear in this message today the very thing that your heart is longing for, something that could be bigger than the division in our world today, something that would be worth your entire life, the surrender of your entire self. Well, last week we started this little two-part mini-series called Unity Over Division, and we talked about the Apostle Paul's call to remain united to fellowship, even when we disagree over some important issues, like whether chocolate and peanut butter should actually be mixed. If you missed that message, go and check it out. It's available online. If you were with us, you will recall the big problem in the church in Paul's day was that the early Christians were having a big food fight. Now, not literally, but though sometimes I imagine they wanted to throw food at each other, the real issue in the early church was around religious food laws and food that had been sacrificed to idols. This was uh, all over uh, in the Bible, and we looked at the issue from Romans chapter 14. These were not trivial matters in Paul's day, but they were dividing the church. And Paul said, come on, guys, come on, let's not divide over these issues. As even though they might be important, let's not let these issues be the thing that divides us. This is the verse that led our discussion from last week from Romans chapter 14. Paul writes, except the one whose faith is weak, here it is, without quarreling over disputable matters. In other words, in other words, the big idea was that we are to accept one another because God has accepted us. We should not break fellowship over important issues where the Bible would allow for disagreement. Now, as I mentioned, our society today is more divided than ever. In fact, we are marked by division and anger and bitterness and fear at every turn. And last week, I tried to make the case that the reason this issue is so important for the church is because the world is watching us. In fact, our children are watching us. And what they're wondering is this. Does faith in Jesus actually make any difference at all in a divided world? Are Christians any different than those around us who would simply give in to the divisions? Or do Christians have a hope for something greater? And that's what I want to look at with you today. Uh, well, if last week was uh, centered around what we might call disputable matters, then today's message is centered around the one indisputable matter for Christians, what God actually requires of every Christian. And to unpack that, I want to go back to the beginning of this section that we've been looking at in Romans. I want to go back to Romans chapter 12. Chapter 12 is where Paul begins to lay out his explanation of Jesus' great command that we are to love one another as he has loved us. Over the next five chapters, Paul's going to unpack this, but it's right here at the beginning that we get the one thing that Paul thinks is absolutely essential for every Christian believer. Let me read this to you. This comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Why? Because this is your true and proper act of worship. You see, Paul's talking to Christians here. 
He's talking to the church. He says, look, this isn't a Sunday-only kind of thing. Every moment of every day, you are to live this surrendered life to God, a living sacrifice. But why are we to do that? Well, he says, we're to do it in light of God's mercy, his grace. We're to do it because he has adopted us as his children. So in light of that, Paul says, we are to live in a certain way. Namely, we are to offer our bodies, which of course is a metaphor for our whole lives. We're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Every moment of every day, living for God. So what does that look like? Well, he tells us in the very next verse. He says, this is your true and proper act of worship. Therefore, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. What is this pattern of the world that Paul's talking about? Well, Paul doesn't exactly tell us here in Romans 12. In fact, he just assumes that you and I are smart enough to figure this one out on our own. He thinks he doesn't need to tell us. We all know what the pattern of this world is. It's just our default mode. It's the mode that we live in without thinking, the water we swim in. What does that pattern of this world look like in the world right now? Well, I just want to share with you my reflections. I think the pattern that we're seeing in the world today is one of pride and arrogance, Look, I don't have anything to learn. I already have it all figured out. In fact, you should be listening to me, not me to you. That's the pattern of this world. Pattern of this world is bitterness and anger. If you offend me or if we disagree, the the felt response is bitterness and anger. Uh, Everywhere I turn in the world today, I see an us versus them kind of mentality. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, talk about fear. It's like the famous line from the scary movies, be very afraid, be very, very afraid, which always kind of sounded like Elmer Fudd from Bugs Bunny to me. (laughs) You see, Paul says, look, look, don't let yourself be formed, conformed to that pattern. Instead, be transformed. Be transformed. Now, the key word, obviously, in this passage is this word, transformed. And in the Greek, this is one of my favorite Greek words, a little nerdy moment. It is the word metamorpho, metamorpho. Now, if you grew up watching uh, the Power Rangers, you probably remember this. It was like, hey, it's morphing time, right? That meant they were to be changed. They were to be transformed. But, of course, this is also where we get the word metamorphosis. It means to be changed from the inside out. Now, we use this word to describe what happens to a caterpillar when they cocoon up and emerge as a butterfly. And this will not come as a surprise to you, but I am not exactly an expert on butterflies. In fact, my complete education on butterflies comes from the very hungry caterpillar that I used to read to my kids when they were younger. But what I know from the very hungry caterpillar is this, that as soon as he cocoons up, it's not that he begins rearranging the pieces of his body. He's not in there reading manuals about how flight works or or how to do this whole butterfly thing. His body actually releases enzymes that turn his body into a little soup. And these cells begin to rearrange into a new creation with wings, antennae, eyes, and all the rest. And the creature that was once bound to the form of a worm is now transformed into a butterfly. It's really one of the most miraculous signs in all of creation. But it is also, it is also, according to Paul, an image for the life of a Christian. 
Now watch this, because I think this is really cool here. This is where the power of the gospel really comes in. You see, when you and I decide to become followers of Jesus, when we surrender our lives to him and make him the leader of our life, God promises in his scriptures to do this. He promises to begin this work of transformation in us. And he is faithful to complete it, as Paul says in Philippians. Through God's word, through prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, these things act like enzymes in us, and they begin dissolving those things, the pattern of this world in us. Things like pride and self-centeredness, bitterness, envy, rage, fear, sin. And these things, as they are dissolved, God begins working that soup together to begin molding us into a new creation. More the kinds of people that reflect the heart and the character of Jesus. That is God's plan. That is God's purpose for your life. And this is, of course, exactly what Paul meant in one of his other letters when he says, if anyone is in Christ, they are what? They are a new creation. God is in the process of transforming you and me. So, so, what does that transformation look like? I mean, practically speaking, how do we know if we're being shaped and molded more into the image of Jesus? Well, that is exactly what Paul lays out in the next 12 verses of this chapter. And I want to just walk through some of these verses and call out a few of these key factors. You see, here in Romans 12, Paul lays out two key characteristics that are to be marks of the Christian, marks of the person who is a living sacrifice being transformed into the image of Jesus. And the first of those marks that we see might surprise you a little bit. It is humility. Look with me at the very next verse, verses 3 through 5. Paul continues, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to the other. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Let's pray and go home. That would probably solve most of the world's problems right there. <laughs> but I wanted to make a parallel from the world of sociology. Has anyone ever heard of the fundamental attribution error? Anyone? Anyone in the room? Good, okay, virtually no one. Good, I like to know stuff that you don't because it makes me look smarter than I actually am. The fundamental attribution bias is something we have all been sucked into in this season, especially in this divided political season. And it goes like this. The fundamental attribution bias causes us to attribute people's behavior to their deep character flaw. Instead of other circumstances or other factors, we blame their behavior on something that we think is fundamentally wrong with them. The reason he acts this way is because that is who he really is. Or the reason she acts this way or believes that way is because that's who she really is on the inside. But we don't do this with our own behavior. We attribute our behavior to circumstances or other environmental factors. Now, if this seems a little bit technical, let me give you an example that you will be very familiar with. Let's say you're at the office and, and there's somebody on your team uh, or in your department that shows up late, right? The guy's late to, to the office. And, and what you think in your brain is he's late. And you know why he's late? He's late because he's lazy, irresponsible, and disorganized, right? That's why he's late. 
But then one day you're late and you have never once looked in the mirror and said to yourself, you know why I'm late? Because I'm lazy, irresponsible, and disorganized. No, we don't say that. It's just the opposite for you and me. When we are late, we decide that the reason we are late is because, well, we were trying to get the kids to school, or the bus driver was late, or the traffic. We have all kinds of other ways of explaining why we were late. You might even think I'm actually very organized and responsible. In fact, I'm so organized and so responsible, that's why I'm late, right? That's how our thinking goes. But we never extend that kind of grace to the other. Now, here's what that looks like in the pattern of this world. Here's what this looks like in our us versus them world today. Whatever us you are a part of, you tend to see the them group over there through this bias. Oh, you know, we all have a them group, right? That them group over there, you know, you know the way they act that way, you know, the way they, that thing they do, that thing they believe, it's because, well, they're all corrupt or because they're all heartless, right? I mean, all of them. And you've actually done your research. You've sat down with all of them and you can see their hearts because you're God and you can see that their hearts are corrupt and they're heartless. In fact, they're not even humans. They're actually zombies without hearts. But you see, when we succumb to this kind of thinking, When we reduce human beings in this way, we are simply conforming to the pattern of this world. We are simply playing into the us versus them pattern. And Paul says, he says, knock it off. (laughs) Don't do that. I need you to think differently. Namely, I need you to think humbly. Don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought But, as he will say later in verse 10, honor others above yourselves. You see, when we choose the path of humility, you know what we do? We listen. We learn. We lean in. And we don't play into this cognitive bias. In fact, next time you hear someone doing this, kind of giving into the fundamental attribution error, and they're just saying something kind of out there like, oh, you know all those so-and-sos. They're all just whatever that blank would be. You can actually call your friends out on this. You can say, you know what? You're suffering from a cognitive bias right now. And they'll say, a what? (laughs) A cognitive bias. And then you can say something like this. You know, I used to be that way, but now I'm emotionally mature and self-aware. I used to suffer from that cognitive bias, but then I heard this fabulous sermon from my pastor that helped me understand what was actually going on. And so I don't do that anymore. No, you don't need to do that. But we do need to become aware of how this bias operates in us. You see, Paul knows, Paul knows this, that if we as Christian brothers and sisters are going to be united, we must, we must learn to choose a posture of humility. We must learn to think less of ourselves and we must honor one another, especially, especially those who are different than us, those who disagree with us, and those that we may not feel we're on the same side. But Paul doesn't stop there. In fact, Paul actually makes a second move in this passage that is really kind of fascinating. You see, Paul in verse 9 calls Christians back to the very same command that Jesus had given, that we are to love one another as he has loved us. Paul's going to say, look, it's not enough to love according to the pattern of this world. We must learn to love according to the pattern of Jesus. 
Look with me at verse 9. He says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Here it is. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, I don't have the rest of this passage on the screen, but just listen to how he continues in these next verses. What does that love look like? He says this, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul, you mean the people that don't agree with me politically? You mean, you, Paul, you mean the people that see the social issues differently than I do? Paul, Paul you, you mean people different from me ethnically or culturally? Paul, that's a high calling. See, Paul is calling us back to a deep kind of love that is different from the love we see in this world. And the key word in this passage is the word sincere. Love must be sincere. Now this word sincere comes from the Latin word sincerus, which means without wax. And I think this is so cool. Bear with me on this. It stems from the practice in the early Roman marketplaces where merchants would set out their earthen or, or porcelain jars for sale. And if they had a crack appeared on, appearing on one of them, they would fill that crack with a wax of the same color. But the buyer would not be aware that it was cracked, and so they would end up paying more money than that jar was actually worth. But astute buyers learned to hold these jars into the sun, and if the jar was cracked, the wax would melt and the crack would be revealed. So honest merchants would test their wares this way and marked them sincerus without wax. The word literally means to let love be without blemish, without hypocrisy. Listen to how Jesus described this in Matthew's gospel. Jesus put it this way. He said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you already, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? See, Jesus says, if love is going to be real, if love is going to be sincere, it cannot be that we only love those who are already a part of our in-group. We only love those who already think like us. We only love those who agree with us. Paul says, love must be sincere. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters united by a higher connection to Jesus. That's our highest allegiance. And because of that, we must love sincerely. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we truly honor one another, even in the midst of disagreement? Well, I want to give us three things, three practices that we might try this week. And just to hook you up, I made them all start with the letter L. Three ways that we can love, and they all begin with L. And the first is simply this. We can love one another. We can honor one another by listening, by listening. Do y'all remember what listening is? 
Man, in our world today, friends, there is so much noise. There is so much talk. We are so quick to, to defend, to respond, to, to criticize. But what if, what if, as the Proverbs say, we were slow to speak and quick to listen? What if when we disagreed, instead of retaliating, instead of arguing, what if I was simply to say, you know what? I, I have pretty good reasons for thinking the way I do. You probably have some pretty good reasons for thinking the way you do. Could you tell me a little bit more? Could you help me to understand why you think that way? The first way we can love one another is by listening. The second way we can love one another is by learning. Earlier in this passage, Paul says, remember that in Christ, we in Christ, we are one body. We need one another. Without each other, our image of Christ would be incomplete. There is something about Christ, something about Jesus that I can only learn by being in relationship with you. What if I was to take a posture of learning in the midst of this divided culture? And third and finally, the third and final way we can love is by leaning in, leaning in. My friends, the, the months ahead of us are going to be some trying months. And the temptation for all of us is going to be to back away from one another. But what if, what if instead we were to lean in to devote ourselves to one another, to commit to our highest allegiance to Christ where we are called to love one another as he has loved us. What well, was 2,000 years ago that a group of Jesus followers from very different backgrounds did just that. They devoted themselves to one another and they united around this one mission, this one person, Jesus, and this one non-negotiable command that they were to love their enemies and they were to love one another just as Jesus had loved them. And that little band of Jesus followers, though they had no power, they had no resources, they had no societal positions, they would go on to change the world. And what if? What if our church could be a part of that same mission today? What if people, as they looked at you and me in our community groups, in our neighborhoods, here at Lake Forest Church, saw an example that did not match the pattern of this world, but seemed to be a pattern that had been transformed, transformed into a law of love, a law of generosity, a law of grace, the law of Christ. What if when they looked at us, they saw the very thing they were aching for? 2,000 years ago, the church changed the world. And we have the same opportunity today. Well, I want to end with these words from the Apostle Paul. This comes from the 15th chapter. It's actually part of the blessing that he gives at the very end of this letter. And I wanted to hear it in his own words. He writes this. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so... May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind 
and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. What was on the night that Jesus gathered with his disciples, just before his death, they gathered around a table and Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. In a similar way, Jesus took a cup of wine and after giving thanks, he said, this is the blood of my new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Today, as we come to Jesus' communion table, the communion reminds us of three things. First, communion is a reminder that we have been accepted by God, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Secondly, communion is a reminder of our unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, that everyone is welcome to this table and that at Jesus' table, we are all brothers and sisters. And third and finally, communion is an invitation to search our hearts again, to confess our sins, to confess where we have failed to love others the way Jesus has loved us and to receive again the grace and forgiveness power that only Jesus can offer. Today, as you receive these elements, these signs of his grace again, may he fill you with his Holy Spirit, his grace, his forgiveness, his power, and his love. Go ahead and receive those elements now as we continue in worship.